I was born before the ballpoint pen. Eh? <laughs> Hello, this is Umida Switlow. I'm sitting here with Mr. Malloy, and it's 1972, and it's August. Where are you? In August 1972, I'm in uh, Beirut, Lebanon, uh, where I was uh, a junior member of the visa section in, at the Canadian Embassy there. We were responsible for immigration for all the countries between the border of Afghanistan, so Iran, Iraq, all those places, and then the whole eastern half of Africa down to the South African border and out as far as Mauritius in the Indian Ocean. And uh, we were, in the month of August, word had come to us that uh, the, there had been a, a series of events in Uganda and it seemed that uh, the uh, dictator of that country, Idi Amin, had ordered the, uh, uh, the removal from Uganda of the Asian population. I had just gotten back from Uganda. I'd been down there twice that year. We didn't have very many immigrants, but my boss, Roger St. Vincent, was very nervous about the future of the Ugandan community, so he had sent me down in January and then again in, uh, in June uh, to do other things in Africa, but he always said, you go, go back to, uh, to Kampala and make sure that we have relations with the leaders of the various Asian communities there, including the Ismaili community. So I had barely got back uh, from the, summer, the spring trip, the summer trip, when word came of the coup. And on the 22nd of August, uh, our, my life and the life of my wife Jo and our kids got turned over upside down because... On the, on the Tuesday, 22nd of August, my wife was told by our embassy doctor that he wanted her to go back to, to Vancouver to have our youngest child. He didn't want her having the child in Beirut. And then on the, on the 23rd, I was told that I would be leaving uh, Beirut anyways to open up an office in the United States. And then on the 24th, the Thursday, our bo my boss, Roger St. Vincent, called me into his office and read the following message to me that had come in from Ottawa that day. And this message was from the immigration headquarters to Mr. St. Vincent, Roger St. Vincent. It said, you're not aware, you are not unaware of General Amin's decision to expel 80,000 Asians from Uganda, accusing them of being puppets of the British government and sabotaging the economy of his country. Your mission is to proceed to Kampala and by whatever means undertake to process without numerical limitations those Asians who meet immigration selection criteria bearing in mind their particular plight and facilitate their departure to Canada. So right away we had a set of rules that say apply the normal rules but be aware that other things may be required. The message went on to, 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 to mention me. It said that Mike Malloy, a seasoned officer, I was at that stage 28 years old I think, I'd been working for three years, was to accompany him as, as his deputy. Uh, and since I'd been to Uganda twice that year, it, it made some sense. Later that afternoon, we got a message, we got the press release that had been issued by uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. And it's, it said, a team of officers from Manpower and Immigration Canada and National Health and Welfare is being dispatched within the next few days to Kampala to accelerate the processing of applications of those Asians who apply to come to Canada. This step will enable us to form a clearer impression of the numbers involved and the extent to which exceptional measures may have to be taken to deal urgently with those who do not meet normal immigration uh, criteria. Uh, should circumstances demand it, 
the Minister of Manpower and Immigration has been authorized to institute a program of admission on an emergency basis. And the message ended with the following, uh, what, perhaps one of the most famous messages ever given by a prime minister to a group of, 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 of refugees coming to Canada. He said, for our part, we're prepared to offer an honorable place in Canadian life to those Ugandan Asians who come to Canada under this program. Asian immigrants have already added to the cultural richness, richness and variety of our country, and I'm sure that those from Uganda will, by their ability and industry, make an equally important contribution to Canadian society. So those were our, th that, that was what we received the la on the 22nd, 23rd, 24th of, of August. We were told, a way to go. So Roger immediately left for, uh, for Uganda uh, through Nairobi. And I stayed around uh, about another week it took for Joe and I to break the lease, pack up the house, ship her, her and the kids off to Canada. And uh, it was on the, on the, uh, the, 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 follow, the following Monday, about five or six days later, that I uh, got up, got on, got on an airplane uh, to, to, first to Athens and then to Nairobi, having in that frantic week done all those things. And in fact, I realized at some along there as, uh, that uh, little, a voice in my head said, hey, Mr. Seasoned Officer, what did you do with your car? Oh, yes. <laughs> I had forgotten totally that I had a car. <laughs> and as it turned out, I, I, I left it in a hotel parking lot and walked away a little bit overloaded. Uh, so, so anyways, I arrived in, 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 uh, in when I got, by the time I got to Nairobi, there was a message waiting for me for, from Roger saying, please stick around for a day or two. He was having some, some forms printed up. He said, come as soon as they're done and bring two large Canadian flags. So I breezed into, uh, into uh, Uganda, into Gampala, uh, about the, uh, the, the second or third of, of September. Yes. Dumped my stuff at the, uh, the Apollo International Hotel and went down to the IPS building, which was a building owned by one of the Asian communities, the Smiley community, where we had, been, we had procured office space on the ground floor. And I remember walking into the office and looking around, and it was just a hive of activity, uh, a whole bunch of furniture that Roger had had uh, made for the the place uh, by a very uh, uh, energetic carpenter was arriving. A big front desk, tables, chairs, and various things, and I was and all sorts of people were hauling files and file cases and th things around. And people were talking, and uh, I stood there looking around, and I, all of a sudden Roger spotted me, and he said, "Hey, Mike, did you come to look or did you come to work?" And I said, well, I guess I better get to work. So we, uh, within seven days of Roger arriving there, we opened the doors. And f for, for three days, we handed out applications to people across this, this big counter. We, uh, on the first day, I've, I've got the numbers here. It's an incredible number. The, uh, uh, within three or four days, we had given out over almost 8,000 applications. Oh my. And, we, and, and within the, with, by the third day, we had over 4,500 of them back. Oh. Uh, I mean, we handed out applications for three days and we took in applications for three or four days. And the big problem we had to solve was, how do we communicate with people? I mean, you know, exactly. we don't have time to write letters, we don't have time for the mail. And one of the, one of the clerks who'd come from Ottawa to help support us, just as he was going out there, grabbed a, a numbering machine, a stamp, a kind of a stamp machine, 
that would 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 uh, stamp a number and then and then roll it over. But you could you could stamp the number six or seven times and then it would roll over the next number. So what we did is people started bringing the applications back in. Uh, they would come in, they'd give us the application, we'd stamp the number on the, on the application, we'd stamp the same number on a, a, a gray form that they, they had to fill out that had been made up by the British Embassy to had to do with taxes. And we'd say, see, that's your number, watch for this number in the, Ar in the Argus newspaper. Uh, and so, so that uh, we, we said, you're, that's how we'll communicate with you, watch for that number. So the, the applications came in, it worked like a bomb, and of course it was perfectly private, because nobody knew a person's number but the person themselves. So they all rolled in, and we spent uh, late, late nights going through them. Now, because our, our, our rules said, you have to, first of all, look at the case from the point of view, do they meet the ordinary rules? And if not, what else is there about the case that, that, merits, uh, that merits attention? So we had to go through the process that immigration calls paper screening, where you know we had the famous point system. So, oh. so many points for age, so many points for education, occupation, skill, whether you have a job offer, whether you have relatives, language, ability, English, French, that sort of thing. So we spent a lot of late nights sitting at these brand new tables on these hard chairs, uh, you know, with our little demand guides, uh, figuring out who would qualify, who would not. But then. We hadn't gotten very far into the process when it became apparent that uh, that there were there were things happening in, in the in the Ugandan community to the Asians that required that we begin to adjust. For example, uh, the uh, Ugandan government de decided to hold a citizenship verification exercise where people had to line up and bring their citizenship documents. I remember documents. that. Yes. And. About halfway through the first day, the soldiers just came down the lines and took away everybody's documents. That's right. So that was so. We had to go back to Ottawa and say, well, in addition to taking stateless people and people who meet the ordinary criteria, we must now take Ugandan citizens because their citizenship is meaningless. Their government won't protect them. So that meant that we we were able to broaden out uh, the the people that we took. So people like me could come. Yes, yes. So people, and it was so it was interesting because. The way it worked is anybody who met the normal criteria could come, but if you were below that, if you didn't have the right number of points, whether it was 39 or whatever it was at the cutoff point, you had to have something else. So if you were below that point, but you had a British passport, we'd say, well, go to Britain, or if you had an Indian passport, go to India. But if you were stateless or you were you were Ugandan Uganda national, and you were below that, we would take a second look, and we would we, we would then and we gradually sort of once we worked through the people who who sort of perfectly qualified. Then we we go down another four or five points and take the next row out, the next row. And then as as time went by, of course, and we got to know the community better, uh, we began to be able to spot people who were in difficulty. And as we developed better and better uh, relations with the heads of the Ugandan, the Shari, Hindu, Sikh, and, and other communities, Goans, uh, their, their leaders would often come to us and say, well, whatever else is going, here's a family, something special is happening. So we would be able to reach in and, and get those families and, and uh, uh, approve them and, and, and put them on the process. Now, we only had two months to do all this. And, uh, the, uh, and everybody not only had to meet this sort of immigration criteria, they also had to have a medical examination. Yes. And the, the, uh, the Army sent us a team of medical technicians 
who set up a huge tent. They, they, they came in as if they were going into a war with, a, with a, a generator about the size of a Volkswagen and all sorts of other equipment. And we set them up in a, in a, in a tent outside the hotel. And it was the hottest place on the earth. And it was the smelliest place on earth because they had to do all these terrible tests for, for blood and, and other unmentionable things. Yes. Uh, so we were glad to have them out there and we were glad to be where we were. So it, it took a while for them to get going. And in fact, Ottawa wanted to send us the first flight on, on about the 18th of September. Oh, and we okay. simply didn't have the medicals in, nor was anybody 18 days in ready to travel. We, we couldn't find people who were willing to go even if, if we waived the medical. So the first, uh, the first flight, I think, the first one flight, then went, went out about 12 or 14 days after we, uh, after we, uh, after we started, and we. Uh, oh, can we I ask you a question about that? Yeah. Were these planes? Did were they uh, chartered flights? Yeah, yeah. The government, the Canadian government, chartered uh, uh, Pacific National Airlines, CP Air, Air Canada. They all bid. And they all they all took turns. The initial plan was that the refugees were were going to be uh, were going to get a, a a travel loan from the government of Canada. Yes, travel. And we had an, an assisted passage loan, which is the normal thing for refugees coming to Canada. As soon as the Amin government heard that they, the people were getting a loan, he issued a, a statement saying, "Well, we're going to put a tax on the loan." Oh my goodness! So Trudeau responded immediately and said, "There is no loan." The, the transportation's free, and that was that. Uh, so it was really quite, quite, quite interesting. It was a great thing for us, you know, to uh, out working out there to have the prime minister making decisions like that. Wow! Wham, bam, you know. Uh, it was. Re it really gave us a huge amount of encouragement, to, because we knew that the, uh, you know, our prime minister was right behind us and and uh, monitoring things and making changes as as we had to do them. So. Um, I wonder how Canadians taxpayers felt when they heard this kind of news. You know, I don't think the Canadian taxpayers yeah. cared too much at that stage. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, uh, first of all, it, you know, it was a, it was a few thousand people. Yes. Uh, and as time went on, I mean, people in Canada didn't know much about Idi Amin, no. but his antiques uh, during this whole process, people began to see we were dealing with a very erratic. Uh, a dictator, and that that you know, I think there was very strong support in Canada for the fact that we'd intervened. Now it's interesting; these were the first non-white refugees we'd ever taken. You know, at the end of the Second World War, you know, we we shut down immigration to Canada all through the 30s. Oh. The end of this because of the Depression and then the yes. war. The end of the war, uh, we were really really busy with the uh, with the bringing home the soldiers and their wives because they'd all acquire, a lot of them acquired wives. And then we got very deeply into the process of taking displaced people out of the, uh, the camps in, uh, in, you know, after, after the Second World War. It took almost a decade to clean, clear that up. And Canada at that stage was a very white country and didn't, couldn't see why it should be anything else. But by the 60s, uh, things began, really began to change. I think the Trudeau era was part of it. But, you know, by, by 1967, we had, uh, 1962, they took off the color barrier. Oh, okay. 1967, they brought in the, the point system, which meant we could screen anybody anywhere in the world against, uh, against the same rules. So there was no special deal for Americans or Brits or Dutch. Everybody, wherever they came from, had the same criteria. So 
and we were very proud of that as, as immigration officers. We were very proud to have a, have a non-discriminatory tool that was objective uh, and that we could use to determine who could get in. And the great flexibility of it was that we could we could use it, as I say, we could say, okay, well, if the normal password to get an interview is, say, 41, uh, well, the, you know, the Ottawa would say to us, okay, well, drop it down to 38. Well, drop it down to 36. So we just kept scraping through, through, the, through, through, through the community and, and bringing more and more people in as, uh, as people were identified as having nowhere to go. Uh, and uh, it, it was, uh, it, you know, it, and this was even before, you know, there was no mention of, of refugees in Canadian law at that time. There was, there, but, but there was a, there was a well-established practice that we'd worked out in Europe. And there was also another interesting thing. I mean, how do you, you know, a refugee by definition is somebody who's fled across the border, right? Yes. These people had not fled across the border. But we, Canada had already dreamed up something called the oppressed minority uh, provision, which said if somebody meets the refugee definition, in other words, they have a well-founded fear of persecution for race, religion, da-da-da-da-da, and they haven't fled, the government can then say, okay, you can target those people. It wasn't something that immigration officers could do on their own because you were, you were, you were interfering in the sovereignty of another country. But if the government of Canada decided, okay, this is, we need to interfere, there was a tool we had. And so, so most of the Ugandans were, were brought in. Uh, if you look at the visa, there's a little number on it that says OM, which means oppressed minority. Oh, and that was the, okay. And that, that qualified them to be selected as refugees, and it also qualified them to be settled as, re as refugees. In other words, it was assumed that uh, they would require assistance when they arrived in Canada. Wow. So it was a, the government all, had also, uh, in addition to setting up the, uh, the airlift, had set up a, a special reception center at uh, an Air Force base in Montreal called Long Point. And so all of the charter flights, and we were, eventually there were times when we got two flights a day, but certainly by, when we were really roaring along, two to three flights a week was nothing. And so they would all go to Long Point and they would stay a day or two there while they're, they would be oriented and it would be decided where they would go on to and, and, and where we go. So it was a very, very, very well organized. Uh, I heard some amazing stories about that. People arriving and it was winter. Yes. And receiving coats and yeah. hats yeah. and gloves yeah. and yeah. food and right. all yeah. that. But you would have to prepare, you would, in your reports, would have to be telling them how many people to yeah. expect. And and because of the various dietary issues, oh, now, we, now we normally never ask people their religion, but we because of the different dietary requirements for the flight and for the reception center, we had to identify so that people would you know wouldn't be fed you know beef sandwiches or or whatever you know the groups are vegetarian groups would eat this group was yes. so we actually would have to be before we as once we got the flight set up you know a few weeks but a few days before it was going to go we'd have to we'd have to fire a message to Canada saying on this flight will be so many seats so many this so many that and then they would consult people and make sure that whatever food was on there was okay for the people who were coming it was you know it was quite a quite an elaborate uh, thing <laughs> and did the flights go straight from Kampala to Montreal? Sometimes they would stop to refuel somewhere in Europe or in in the Azores Islands, uh, oh. but uh, but it was just a it was one long jump. The the oh real th God. problem we had was that people were only allowed two suitcases, yes. and uh, 
and uh, of course there were all sorts of tricks played to get more and more stuff onto the planes and I remember I particularly remember the last flight as it went out we we weren't sure it was gonna you know it went right it used up every bit of the air air, air you know the, the the field it find it cleared things and my goodness it's flying along for miles and miles a few hundred feet above the ground it was so over, heavy until they until they burned up the fuel and then they could get up higher because it was so heavy I mean we just held our breath with that last one oh uh, my but it was, but it was, you know, pretty tough on people, particularly those going in the early before people had got chance to uh, to make preparations. Pretty tough on people to take their whole life in a suitcase or two. And I mean, people would come to us and say, "Well, can't there be a special case?" And there's no, you know, the airplane will carry so much weight. No special cases are, are allowed. But it was, uh, it was a huge airlift, uh, and it. Uh, it went off, but to a large point, went off without a hitch. It was always a bit chaotic. You know, people would come to the parking lot at the uh, at the uh, the Apollo Hotel, and uh, and there'd be lots of yelling and shouting as they said goodbye to their friends, and we managed to push them all onto the buses. And then they go. We went up with the bus and with the big big flags on it. Initially, the our with high Canadian flags, the big Canadian flags on them. Oh wow! And and, and then once the. Uh, and, and we even had police escorts and the ambassador uh, at first, the high commissioner. But once the people at the checkpoints then got used to seeing them, all it took was these great big flags on the front of the buses, and they'd be, they'd be waved through. But it was really quite, uh, quite impressive to see them pulling out, and then all their friends saying goodbye, and the family were always extremely emotional. Very cheery. So let's go back to this application process. Yep. And you, as young Canadians, are out there processing these... Tell me some of the more, if you, you don't, please don't mention names because yep. it's confidential, but some of the more bizarre things that were happening in the, in the process to you as Canadians being there, yeah. what was your life like there, the hours that you worked, and okay. we, a we, day in the life yeah. of. <laughs> the good thing about the, uh, I mean, the, the team was multi-age and multidisciplinary, but the bulk of us were well under 30. Wow. Uh, Roger, the boss, had been a fighter pilot in the Second World, and he was he was an old guy, you know. And the, one of the doctors was was had gray hair, but the rest of us were well under our thirty, so we had lots of energy, and and uh, you know the, we tended to open up at seven thirty in the morning, and we'd run all day long. If you were lucky, you'd get lunch. We'd interview like crazy in the mornings, and uh, I ran the the section of four or five officers that did the actual interviewing, uh, and then. They would continue interviewing after lunch, and I would break off and I would do the make sure the files were getting to the right places. And there, you know, there was always troubleshooting. Too. There were always people who thought they should be given, you know, if they'd been turned down, well, they wanted to know why and couldn't we take into account something else. So there was a fair amount of troubleshooting that had to be done. Uh, and th so that would, and I, I don't remember ever getting out of there before six. And then getting dinner in Kampala in anything like two or three hours was always a bit of a stretch. They were in some good restaurants, but man, they were slow. They were so they still just incredible. And then because we were young, there was a great band in the leopard's lair up on the top floor of the hotel. So so at eleven thirty everybody had drift up there and listen to the music and dance a bit and you know and roll into bed at maybe about one you know, one o'clock or twelve thirty or one and then be up and away away you go next morning. There were there we had one of the great things was we because we had all those applications we were able to find a lot, we needed clerical support well we had all the 
qualified people in, in, in Uganda in our files. So we call we call people in and say, if you work with us, you know, we'll make sure that your application gets through. Uh, and so we and and that created a lot of links out of the community that we wouldn't otherwise have had. And we had people who were from all different communities working in the office with us. So that was very very helpful. And they provided very useful. You know, they, they come to us and say, Mike, you really need to talk to their so-and-so. And, and that, that was very helpful. We had some, some very striking cases. There was one day when a policeman chased, uh, an army officer chased uh, one of our staff members right into the uh, building because he wanted her car or something like that. And we had to uh, you know, see him off. Uh, Oh. My, uh, there, there was a. An, Did you have security with you? No, no, we we were oh own security. Goodness. No, no, <laughs> and and uh, and we didn't have enough of the. We didn't have enough World War II veterans along with us to sort of teach us what to do. There was a really weird day when the there had been a, a fight in a big fight in the bar. They wanted to shut down the bar for lunch, and people disagreed. Next thing, the army came and roared through the city. And I remember my office, or my office, my chair, and my desk. There was no office. <laughs> Was right by the window, and I looked out. I was look, looked out one at one moment, and the, the you know the the street was just full of people because we had were on one floor and the British were below us. Looked out a minute later, there was nobody there, and the army had come roaring through, and the people could hear these 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 uh, armored cars and personnel cars r ripping down the road. So all the Asians disappeared, and uh, uh, we hear this noise, and like a bunch of idiots, we all go stand in the window. And this huge, uh, big square armored personnel carrier comes up, stops in front of us, along with a bunch of jeeps. They swing all the machine guns around and point them at us guys standing in the window. Ah! So there we are. Oh my, oh my goodness. And we had an old Czechoslovakian guy with us. He said, just stand still, boys and girls. Just don't move. So we stood and they looked at us. And then one of them yelled something to the other. And they all laughed and they turned the guns away and drove away. So at that stage, I said, uh, Roger was out of town that day, and I said to everybody, okay, we're taking the afternoon off, we're going to go to the pool, <laughs> we're not going to stick around in case they come back. So the, there were several of those things. Uh, in addition, during that time, there was an attempted invasion of Uganda uh, by a group of people loyal to the uh, to, uh, to, to Abote, and I was, in fact, I was having lunch with with uh, uh, someone I knew from the community that I'd known from previous trips, whose husband and family were out already. I was trying to persuade her, she, you know, get your application in. So she came for lunch at the hotel, and we uh, were standing, and all of a sudden we, you could see uh, one of the, the roundabouts, and all of a sudden it filled up with army vehicles going like crazy. And a few minutes later, a couple of policemen came in, and there was a British reporter eating uh, a few tables from us. And they grabbed him and they whacked him and punched him and kicked him and dragged him out of uh, out of the uh, uh, build out of the building. So I, I said to this lady, I think maybe you better go home and I think I better go round up our people. It was the weekend, and uh, so I went. Uh, we were they were all over playing squash across the road. So I went over like a party pooper and said, "Break it up, guys. Uh, there's something really bad going on in town, and I don't want anybody out here." So we all I said, "Everybody come back. You're confined to your rooms." Uh, don't even go to the bar. You can, you know, you can go to group in, in, you know, be a group of you in the room, but we don't want to be seen anywhere in the hotel. And there was, there had been a, you know, an attempted uh, invasion that was bloodily put down. So that happened. The how we just did. Take one moment and just take a quick break so that you can have your water and stop there for a second, and then because we.